Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got a great news show for you this week. We're going to talk about uh, two biometrics firms who are partnering up to create a massive nationwide biometrics database. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, we're going to talk about two other big companies uh, who are working on offering independent privacy and security ratings, something I've been asking for for a long time now. We'll talk a little about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about an MIT PhD <laughs> uh, who is planning to replace our horribly insecure voting systems. And finally, for the tip of the week, we're going to talk about some recent phone scams uh, and just phone scams in general and, and how you can protect yourself against those. Uh, also, I want to do a little teaser here. Uh, next week's show is going to be a lot of fun. It's one of my one of my favorite episodes of the year uh, where we do the, uh, my little rundown of the best and worst gifts uh for the year we got that buying season coming up we got black friday coming up uh and uh what is it cyber monday um and you know electronic gifts of course very popular and every electronic thing on the planet is now being connected to the internet which of course raises all sorts of security and privacy concerns so uh, my list will be geared toward that and i'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the show all right first up uh, I saw this in a uh, blog article on Naked Security, a great blog from Sophos, uh, the guys who produce uh, one of my favorite, actually, uh, antivirus software packages, uh, about uh, two companies uh, that are already existing. That one company does fingerprint stuff, and one person does face, or one company does face ID stuff. Uh, and they thought, hey, let's let let's get together and combine. Combine our data and make an even better thing. Uh, of course, uh, I've got something to say about whether that's better or not. Uh, let me read a little bit from this article uh, from the Naked Security blog. Two U.S. biometric companies, SureID and Robbie.ai, have partnered uh, have partnered to research a private nationwide biometric system that could combine fingerprint and facial recognition data. SureID runs a nationwide fingerprint collection system designed to make identity and background checks less painful. Users go to one of around 800 fingerprint collection stations around the U.S. and scan their digits. A few hours later, SureID will deliver the user's background check to their employer, landlord, or whichever other authority they choose. Robbie.ai sells an AI-powered facial recognition technologies. By combining the two companies, SureID hopes to create, quote, the United States' first nationwide biometrics gathering system for broad consumer-focused initiatives, unquote. The idea is to use facial recognition, facial recognition to confirm that the person providing the fingerprints is legitimate. While every organization that ever stored any biometric data anywhere will claim that it's secure, we know that nothing is ever 100% secure, and there's always the danger that the database itself could be compromised. This has happened before. One of the most worrying examples came in 2014 when hackers from China compromised the Office of Personnel Management's computers and stole the fingerprints of 5.6 million people. Another came more recently in January this year when one journalist purchased access to India's Adhar National ID database and another acquired access to an admin account. All right, that's my end of the quote from the article. It goes on and on. Uh, and actually, those are just a, a couple excerpts from the article. But basically what they're saying is there's these two companies, uh, one that collects fingerprints, one that collects face, uh, facial recognition, uh, face IDs. And they decided, hey, let's, let's get together and combine our databases and combine our services so that, you know, when someone does go to provide their fingerprints, we can also validate that their face is the face that belongs to that person who's providing the fingerprints. Okay, so 
at a high level, sure, that that makes sense. Um, if and if nothing were ever go wrong, that's probably a good thing, I guess. If, if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna provide fingerprints, it's good to make sure that you know that the person giving those fingerprints is actually the person they claim to be. Um, but as with the problem with all of this is, the mere collection of this data is really the problem. The fact that this stuff is is digitized and stored somewhere. And in this case, in particular, because it's biometrics, causes real, real dangers. Um, and just like these poor folks from the uh, the Office of Personal Management, their fingerprints are out. They're gone. They can't. It's not like they can change their fingerprints like you could change a password. It's, you know, if my password gets out, okay, I can just change my password. Or if, you know, it's like your house. If someone, you know, if you lose the keys to your house, then you could just change the locks in your house. You can't do that with biometrics. That is the problem. Um, if you lose stuff, you can replace stuff, but you can't lose, if you lose you, you can't replace you. You can't, you can't wipe these things from existence. So those fingerprints, those people's fingerprints are out there forever. Same thing with face ID. And that's one of the things that, um, now Apple, Apple products have, they started with fingerprint ID for your phone and your tablet. And then they, and even the laptops, and then they are starting to go now to face ID. Uh, to, to make it more convenient to prove that you are you so that it will unlock your device. Now, Apple's take on this is different. So they don't, they don't want to have that information in a local database. They just want it stored in the device and very securely stored in that device. Um, so it's not about Apple maintaining all these things. They don't store this stuff in the cloud, or at least they haven't yet, which is good. It's just embedded in a very, very special hardware chip that's, that's, that's built for the purpose of security. Uh, they call it a secure enclave. Other companies call it a TPM or a trusted platform module. There's uh, hardware, HSMs, hardware security modules. They're all, they all have slightly different names and marketing things for these, but uh, they've all realized that security is, is hard to do. Uh, and they've come up with this concept of these little hardware chips that where you can basically put secrets in and you really can't get those secrets back out. You can just ask it questions about those secrets. Uh, for instance, in the fingerprint case, you know, someone gives a fingerprint and they ask, is this a fingerprint that you know? And it'll probably yes or no kind of thing. So anyway, I'm a little bit off topic, but the real worry here with biometrics is going off into databases is that these things can be stolen. Um, no matter how good your security is, if you've stored this digital data somewhere, um, it, maybe it's not a hacker. Maybe it's just a rogue employee. Uh, maybe it's the NSA who comes knocking and says, yeah, we'd like to have that data too. Uh, and so hand it all over to us. Oh, and by the way, you can't tell anybody that we asked you or that you gave up that data. Um, it just opens a huge, huge Pandora's box. So we need to be very, very, very careful about any programs whatsoever involved with taking fingerprints, putting them in databases, um, and storing them there. Same thing with face IDs. Face IDs are probably even worse because, or iris scans for that matter. Because uh, we've got cameras now that, believe it or not, can do an iris scan on you at quite a distance. Um, it, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to put your, like in the old spy movies where you're, you know, the spy sci-fi movies where you put your eyeball up to the scanner and the laser shines on it. I'm sure that's the way some of them work, and I'm sure that's an accurate way to get one. But it's not going to be long um, because your eye, it's not, those are actually retina scanners. Um, so they're actually going through your eye to the back of your eye and scanning your retina. So, but the iris scanners, which are also another type of fingerprint, another biometric, um, identifier is something that can be scanned at a distance. So anyway, uh, I find this disturbing <laughs> and until we can come up with some way, uh, to do this securely, I think we just should not do it. 
Um, that's my personal feelings on this. Of course, there are lots of other things we do this for. Government uses fingerprints for high security situations. Uh, we fingerprint felons. Anyway, so I found, I found that kind of disturbing, and I wanted to pass along that story. Now, for some more positive news, uh, Consumer Reports has started rating network-based devices for their security and privacy. Uh, this is a really, really welcome change of pace. Uh, this is something that I've been wanting for a long time. Um, and uh, I'll talk about another company doing some other stuff here in a minute. Um, but the, the the main article I want to read from you today is, um, is about uh, Consumer Reports, and they, they've recently come out with an article that is rating uh, network-based security cameras. Um, they talked in this case about a D-Link uh, webcam. And uh, let me just read you a little bit of the, this article so I'll give you a taste of what they're doing. The, the, the title is D-Link Camera Poses Data Security Risk Consumer Reports Finds. Under, certain, um, under some circumstances, a wireless home security camera made by D-Link can transmit unencrypted video across the web. A Consumer Reports investigation has found that could allow the video to be accessed by strangers. The D-Link DSS2630L was one of six wireless home security cameras recently home security cameras recently evaluated for data security and privacy by Consumer Reports. We also tested the cameras for ease of use, video quality, and other factors important for making a buying decision. Testers at Consumer Reports haven't learned of any security breaches as a result of the D-Link problem, but most consumers may never realize they're vulnerable, says Robert Richter, who leads security and privacy for uh, privacy testing in CR's labs. Quote, it's like a half-open door to hackers that should be closed, he says. Uh, in response to Consumer Reports' query, D-Link said that security would be tightened up through uh, updates this fall. Consumer Reports will evaluate those updates once they are available. Uh, the main security risk is triggered only if the user, if the owner decides to view the video through a web browser. You can use the uh, camera more securely by sticking to D-Link's mobile app. All right, so that's just a little snippet from this article. But the really cool thing about this is that Consumer Reports is, you know, long regarded as a um, uh, a, a great source for independent uh, reviews of consumer products, you know, and you can agree with them or not. Uh, but just the fact that Consumer Reports is out there, who's there, who are completely independent, they don't take money from anybody other than, uh, okay, maybe I better not say this, because I don't know 100% for sure, but I know they don't do like advertising and things like that. They try to keep maintain their uh, their independence, and they're, they're pretty firm about that. Um, and they're out there reviewing products. And, you know, in the past, they've done things for safety, and, of course, they've always done ease of use, and um, they've done many other things. But it's really great to see that they are now adding privacy and security to their ratings that they've actually got, uh, they're uh, working with a few other companies on this to test these products and make sure that they're, that they're secure and that they're private. And the privacy part, uh, sounds like pretty much what they're doing is they're, they're they've got a, a company that reviews privacy policies and looks over, uh, I'm guessing their, their history uh, of problems or whatever with privacy. Um, so anyway, that it's just good. I'm just glad to see that there's there's independent stuff there because, you know, while it's easy for a consumer to look at a, at a product and, you know, play with it and pick it up and see if it's easy to use, see if they like the way it looks and all that kind of thing, uh, security and privacy are things that you just can't tell by looking. And uh, there's really nothing on the box in most cases that's going to indicate how much better one product is uh, over another in terms of security. And in fact, it's usually worse because most of them claim... You know, everything's encrypted, military-grade encryption, super secure, and those mean all that stuff means nothing. 
So uh, I'm really happy to see Consumer Reports out there starting to lead the way on this. Uh, and the other company I want to mention is Mozilla is doing this too. And I just found this out. Uh, Mozilla, by the way, is the parent company behind Firefox, the browser that I recommend. Um, and I, as I was doing my research for my gift guide for the year, uh, I came across this Mozilla site called Privacy Not Included. And uh, it's, really, it's, it's really pretty cool. Um, so they've gone through and they've uh, done their own kind of research on, the, on each of these products, these popular tech gifts, uh, as to whether or not it, you know, what kind of policies they have, what kind of security they've got built in, that sort of thing. And they've also kind of got this interesting crowdsourced, how creepy is it meter <laughs> where people, you know, they actually make you vote in order to see the results. Um, so that's their way of uh, getting more data. But you go in and you kind of, there's this little slider where you, where you go from not creepy to totally creepy. <laughs> and then there's a little kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down thing. You know, how likely am I to buy this product? Uh, and once you, I think you actually just click on either of those. Once you, you know, slide the meter or, or thumb up or thumb down, you can view the results uh, from other people and you can see what other people think. I don't know how valuable, <laughs> how valuable that is. Um, cause really the whole problem here is that consumers really don't have a way to rate these things. That's all gut feel. And that's usually not the best way to go. But once you look at the rest of the, uh, the article on each product, it, it has all sorts of little things about, you know, what data do they collect on you? What do they do with that data? How secure is the product, et cetera. So that's, that's great. So, uh, that will definitely be part of my gift guide. Uh, that'll come out next week and you'll I'll include that link in the show notes and I'm going to have a blog article on it too. So there's plenty of ways for you can get that information. All right, next up, I want to talk about election security. And of course, we just had the big midterm elections here in the United States. And uh, there are still five states in the U.S. that are completely paperless, which is, we, we just, we've got to fix that. Um, paper, the, as weird as it sounds, and, and with all the technology and things that we have today, you'd think there'd be a way to make things secure without that, but it's really not. We've got to have that physical record that we can always go back to worst case. I mean, if, if all the machines get fried, if all the machines have a bug or, or whatever, you, you can't trust it because you can't see it. Um, it's nice to have the machines that do all the digital calculations for us to get that quick result. Um, but if we ever need to, we've got to be able to go back and hand verify with physical ballots uh, that a human can read uh, to verify the vote. Uh, we've talked about this multiple times on the show and uh, really glad that we've gotten the past two presidents for verified voting on the show. And we've talked about this with some folks from EFF as well. So there's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, I read this article uh, and I'm trying to get this guy on the show. Uh, so cross your fingers. I'll see if I can get through to this guy and have him come on for an interview. Uh, but in the meantime, let me read you this article. It's from uh, Motherboard. And uh, let me read a little bit about this uh, this new thing that he's proposing. Tuesday morning, as millions of Americans lined up at their polling places to participate in the often quite literally broken Democratic process, a new Twitter account tweeted a link to a short manifesto. Quote, today's voting machines are often insecure, not particularly easy to use, and so expensive that they're often used much longer than they were designed for, and election officials are forced to hunt for replacement parts on eBay. The market has failed us, unquote. The announcement from a new nonprofit called Voting Works ends with the promise to build a secure, affordable, open-source voting machine from the ground up. The letter wasn't signed, but it's the work of Ben Adita, a software developer who has studied voting machines for more than 20 years and has a PhD from MIT in secure voting. Adita says that VotingWorks plans to use already existing, com uh, already existing commodity hardware and open-source software 
to compete with the proprietary, expensive, and often insecure voting machines that currently dominate the market. He pitches it as an attempt to rethink voting machines from first principles to reconsider what a voting machine is. Quote, do we have to do it the way we've always done it for 20 years, he said? We have a number of very secure, very inexpensive commodity hardware options that didn't exist 15 years ago. Maybe we shouldn't have $5,000 voting machines. When you're dealing with something this important, we just need someone to build boring technology that works instead of trying to differentiate yourself with proprietary technology where there's more room for mistakes, unquote. So I could not agree more. This is actually something I'd consider doing myself. I even talked to Barbara Simons about this uh, from Verified Voting and said, you know, is anybody working on an open source uh, voting machine? And she put me a couple of resources. And actually, I'll have to look back and maybe she actually knew about this then when I talked to her. Uh, but this is really, this is exactly what we need. And it's kind of like uh, purism. We talked to those guys last, uh, last week in the interview, a great interview. If you didn't catch that episode, I recommend you go back and check that one out. Uh, and Todd Weaver was talking about the very same thing. And then that is, you know, for us to trust these computers, we have, they have to be open kimono, so to speak. I, he didn't use that term. I just, I did. Um, but we have to be able to inspect and verify every single part of it. And then you want to build it such that it doesn't really matter. You want to build it such that even though you make it as open as possible and as secure as possible and have it vetted as many different ways as possible by independent third parties, uh, the best system at the end of the day can survive even that. Um, and that's where the paper ballots come in. So, and he's talking about that too. So anyway, he's talking about creating cheap commodity machines. I mean, they could be iPads, it could be, um, very simple technology that already exists and writing uh, special software for them that's open source that anybody can view. Uh, that's not out there to make money. There's no profit motive. It's a democracy motive, which is the way all these things should be. There's, And that is something uh, that's been a big peeve of mine for a long time is there's so many things in this country that are profit driven that just shouldn't be. Uh, and election systems are one of those things. So I fully support this effort. I really hope I can get into uh, on the show to talk about this, but just know uh, that this is coming, and hopefully uh, we can use these systems to replace these horribly insecure, horribly insecure voting systems that we have today, uh, and roll these out across the country and make sure that we have a paper backup for every vote that we can always verify by hand if necessary. And then, of course, the other big thing that um, verified voting is pushing is risk-limiting audits, uh, and that's a kind of a fancy way of saying that Statistically speaking, if the race is close enough, and there are various methods you use to determine that, then you you all actually you always do some sort of an audit, even a high level audit. So you always do some sort of a random sampling just to make sure that um, of the paper ballots to make sure that the electronic votes match what what you've seen in the paper ballots. If something's fishy there, then you can dial it up and and do uh, recount more ballots. Uh, but how many ballots you choose every time is, de is depending on the risk and how close the race was and those kind of things. Uh, these are, these are things we need to build into our elections. And while I know there's a state's rights issue here where every state wants to be able to run their own elections, um, we do need to set some federal minimum standards for these things and they're free to implement them how they want. Uh, but we've got to do this to secure our elections. It's just, there's no other way to do it. We just, we have to do this. All right, and that brings us to our tip of the week. I ran across an article in Consumer Reports as I was doing some of this other research for the show uh, that talked about scam calls from the Social Security Administration. So let me just read a little bit from this article, and then I'll tell you a little more broadly about how to protect ourselves from phone scams. 
Uh, again, from the article, scammers are using a Social Security Administration phone number in an attempt to steal important personal information from you, regulators warn. The Federal Trade Commission, which regulates the telecommunications industry, says the incoming calls show SSA's customer service number, 1-800-772-1213, on caller ID, though they in fact come, can come from anywhere. This use of a legitimate phone number to fool consumers is known as spoofing. The caller identifies himself as a social security employee and says that your file lacks needed or necessary personal information, such as your social security number. Uh, or the caller may claim to need additional information in order to increase your benefit payment or will threaten to terminate your benefits if you don't uh, confirm the information that he or she has, etc., etc. Uh, so that's a quote from the article. So this is nothing new. Uh, phone scammers have been around for a long time. They're getting kind of clever. But uh, in this case one of the key parts of this particular scam is the caller ID spoofing. And I'm sure you figured this out, but the caller ID that you see often has nothing to do with the actual calling number. If you were to call that number back, it would either go to a wrong number or not go anywhere at all. Um, uh, one of the things I've seen a lot locally, and I've, I got so many spam and robocall phone calls. I, I, I've just gotten to the point where I don't answer my phone if I don't recognize the number. It's just that simple. If it's important, they'll leave a message. Uh, and honestly, that is one of your best bets for uh, for avoiding these scams. If you don't recognize the number, just don't answer the call. If it truly is important, they will leave a message. Um, but some important things to note here. First of all, it's it's easy to spoof that number. It's very easy to change the caller ID number currently. Uh, the government is working on uh, legislation that would change that, and I welcome that. Um, some sort of an authentication mechanism and probably some punishment for people who show the wrong number. Um, it is important to understand that there are some cases where you, you do want to change the number, but it's that number still needs to somehow be associated with your business. It can't be uh, a false number. It can't be a false re representation. For example, if, you know, if you've got somebody calling you from a big company, um, they often have a personal number, but sometimes the number that gets shown is like the general call-in number. And that may be for customer support or things like that. You know, you don't necessarily, you know, the support company doesn't want you to be able to call back the exact person who called you. Uh, so the number they show might be the general support number, that kind of thing. There are legitimate uses for changing that number, but in both in, in that case, that number in, in all cases still represents the actual caller in some way. If you call that number back, you are calling the company back that called you. You're just calling them on a different line. Um, the cases here are those numbers are completely false. Uh, in this particular scam, they're using a well, a well-known published number for the social security administration to look legitimate. Um, but they're actually coming from, they could be coming from anywhere on the planet. Um, so first of all, just know that the caller ID number you see is not like, it doesn't have to be in any way associated with the actual caller. Uh, one of the things I've seen, um, recently is they, the, the calling number is a local number. They always want to make sure it looks like a local number. So you think, you know, that's more likely that you're going to answer that call if you recognize the area code. And if the area code and the station code, uh, are the same. Then you're thinking, oh, is somebody calling me from my neighborhood? Well, maybe I better answer that. I've, I've even gotten, I've gotten phone calls that were one digit off from my number. And, so, you know, so that, that immediately makes me suspicious, of course. Um, all right. So part one, know that that calling ID number could be completely wrong. Second, uh, if you don't recognize that number, uh, just let it go to voicemail. Um, if it's truly important, I'll leave a message. You can listen to that later and then you can call them back. Um, second, if the 
if the number, if, if, if the, the voicemail or the person at the other end sounds like a robot, in other words, it's an automated call, a robocall, that's another red, big red flag. More than likely, it's not for real. So beware of those. Next, if, if the caller is trying to scare you, if the caller is saying, hey, you can't, you know, uh, this is, I've gotten some of these myself. It's the IRS, you know, you're going to be indicted on something or we're going to federally charge you with some crime, you know, unless you call us back immediately or, you know, you've, you've committed some crime, you're, you've not paid your taxes, something like that. That is not what is going to happen. If, if you, if you did do something with the IRS, that is not how they are going to contact you. Uh, I'm sure they're going to uh, start with a, a formal letter um, and, and it will go from there and they will not threaten you like that. So, you know, whenever you get those super threatening calls um, from anybody and, and some of them will even go so far as say, you, know, you don't even hang up. You can't even hang up right now. If you don't pay me before we get off this call, you know, something really bad's going to happen. I mean, that should be that, that just hang up at that point. Nobody, no legitimate government service or, or company is ever going to do that. Uh, so beware of that. The other thing I wanted to bring up as part of this is beware of tech support scams. And I've been hearing this happening a lot lately too, where you'll get a call and they'll claim to be Microsoft or uh, maybe a computer company, Dell or something, or Apple or, or one of those, uh, you know, a popular company that, and claiming that they're, they've detected something about your computer or about your internet service or something that is wrong and they're there to help you. Probably not true. I'm not saying it never happens, but uh, if that's ever the case, if you ever get a call from somebody like that, you know, and they start asking you things like, you know, we need to inspect your computer, so download this special software so that we can take over your computer and help you remotely. Um, uh, if, you know, if they ask you to install honestly anything over the phone and the and or if and or if they want to charge you money for the service, these are all big red flags. Um, uh, and if this happens, uh, you could take down their phone number and say, uh, "Sorry, I got to go. I'm just you know I'm leaving the house right now. I've I've got to go. Make up whatever urgent excuse you want to come up with and say I'll, I'll you know I'll call you back later." Um, and whoever they say they are, if it's Microsoft for example, um, take down the number, but call you know find Microsoft's customer support number. Let's say if it's Microsoft. And call them back and say, hey, did you guys just call me? Uh, more than likely, they're going to say, no, that was a scam. The other reason to take down the, the name and number of the person that called you is that you can actually give that information to the real company that they claim to be because I bet they're going to want to follow up on that. Um, so it's good to get as much information as you can. Uh, just come up with some excuse why you can't talk right now. Um, no matter what they tell you, no matter how urgent it is, you've got something that's more urgent. So that's my recommendation there. The only other thing I'll mention is that there are certain times of year, I think, where these kind of phone scams get worse. Certainly tax time is a huge one. So, you know, as tax time starts rolling around next year, beware of calls from IRS or any other sort of uh, tax-related company or government agency. Uh, Christmas time is, uh, tends to be a big one, too. Um, and maybe it's because, I don't know, people are spending a lot of money at Christmas time. That holiday season, for some reason, seems to be another time when these things happen. So just be aware of that. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Uh, again, I want to put in a plug next week. Uh, stay tuned. I'm going to have my best and worst gifts for 2018. That's always a really fun show. And I've got a lot of great stuff to add to the list this year. Some of the moldies but goodies that will be there from last year uh, with some updated information perhaps. But I've also got some new ideas for you that um, uh, that will be really fun. So that's a great show. Uh, there will also be a blog article associated with that. So I'm going to rattle off a lot of products. 
uh, and I'll point you to the blog article as well, so you can go and uh, be able to click links and find those things easily. If you, can, if I convince you that those would be fun things to buy, the other thing I might say at this point is that this uh, this that would be a great episode that if you know if you think somebody else might appreciate uh, the blog, the newsletter, the book, um, the podcast, uh, you might give people a heads up that this is coming. That'd be a fun way to start out uh, a new subscription. Uh, to the newsletter, to the blog, or what have you. Uh, so you might want to give people a heads up that's coming. I appreciate that. Uh, I'll put out the request again. If you haven't already, please go and uh, leave a nice positive review about the podcast on iTunes or wherever it is you, you get your um, get your podcast from. Uh, the book as well, if you've, ha- if you've got the book and you enjoyed that, I would very much appreciate a, a review on Amazon.com. Uh, and if you, for some reason... Have, have a bone to pick for either any of these things, shoot me a mail. Um, uh, I'm always open to feedback and these things get improved all the time. There's always new editions of the book. Uh, always looking for f- feedback. So uh, you can reach me at Cary, C-A-R-E-Y at wawaseemedia.com. That's a W-A-W-A-S-E-E-M-E-D-I-A.com. And uh, Wawasee, by the way, is a family lake cottage, um, uh, my great grandparents bought it in the forties and it's been in our family ever since. And, uh, unfortunately it looks like it might end up leaving the family. And so my little homage to that was to create a company with that name. So anyway, mm-hmm. so that'll wrap up our show this week, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in again next week. Again, we'll have that great podcast with, uh, with some gift ideas for your security and privacy conscious family. And as always stay safe out there and don't get caught with your driver's time.